Migration and the economy are two main subjects leading the EU agenda and have often been used by national leaders as landmark topics to gain political consensus. However, the link between the legal pathway for migration and the economic, as well as a demographic crisis the EU is experiencing, is rarely discussed. So why is legal migration useful to address the EU's most pressing challenges? What can be done to improve the current policies and to strengthen the respect of human rights when addressing migration. Hi, my name is Gail Rago, and I'm your host for this episode of the Bold Europe podcast. In this episode, we'll discuss the EU legal pathways that regulate migration and the importance of such policies for the EU economy and its demographic decrease. Last but not least, we will discuss the phenomenon of irregular migration and the member states' cooperation with third countries. So let's jump in. Our guests today are Franziska Brandner, who is a parliamentary state secretary at the German Federal Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action, and a member of the German Bundestag since 2013. Before that, she was a member of the European Parliament, serving as foreign policy spokesperson for the Greens and the EFA Group. Rashad Jalali is a senior policy officer at the European Council on Refugees and Exiles. Before this position, he was involved with advocacy activities for refugees and asylum seekers by working with refugee rights, non-profits and refugee-led organizations. So I wanted to start our conversation today by tackling an urgent problem that the EU and its member states are trying to address, the demographic population decline. The EU population is aging, while birth rates are simultaneously falling. Eurostat projects a 6% decrease of birth rates between 2022 and 2100. This could pose a significant challenge for the EU's labour market. So what can be done to address this? Does this mean relying more on labor immigration, or will machines replace workers? Francisca, let's start with you. What do you think? Certainly, machines will come in and replace one part of it, but there will be many jobs that we want human beings to continue to fulfill and where we will need human beings. So all things equal, also if we increase the labor potential of women, of all those who deserve a second or a third chance, I still think we will need immigration. And therefore, we need to facilitate and speed up uh, immigration procedures and opportunities for people to make a training here, to study here or to work here. And I think that's a big challenge we face in the EU and also in Germany. Thanks, Francisca. Your response seems to place even more emphasis on the importance of legal pathways for people on the move and to provide safe channels into the EU. Rashad, my question to you is, what specific pathways does the EU's migration policy framework provide? And where do you think it's still lacking? There are still lack of regular pathways uh, for people to come to Europe, whether it is pathways for labor mobility, for people to work, to come and work in Europe, or 
whether it is pathways for protection for people in need of protection. Speaking of the EU level, there are several initiatives underway to encourage legal migration and attract talent to the EU. As we have seen, such as the skills and talent package, which includes complementary pathways, as well as the reform of the Blue Card Directive and Long-Term Residence Directive. Of course, talent partnership, uh, as the Commission claims, aims to address uh, skills shortages in the EU and to strengthen partnerships on migration with third countries. And recently, the European Commission published a legislative proposal establishing an EU talent pool to create the first EU-wide matching tool to facilitate international recruitment. This aims to make the EU more attractive to skilled workers from non-EU countries and also help employees to find the talent they need. So the proposal is very recent and it is still waiting reportership to be appointed from the European Parliament side. And I believe that it will be up to the next European Parliament to start its mandate and the Commission proposals. When it comes to pathways for protection for people in need of protection, uh, safe pathways in general are relatively new addition to global refugee protection and a particularly new phenomenon in Europe. Recent years have seen implementation of a growing number of Safe Pathways programs, a smaller scale. And overall, speaking of Europe, access to third country solutions remains very limited with people in need of protection, often uh, uh, taking risky journeys to reach Europe, despite the EU and its member states making ambitious promises to significantly increase uh, access to third country solutions. However, little efforts have been made to fulfill those commitments. Thanks for that. It sounds like a lot more needs to be done to provide safe channels into the EU. But migration could be an increasingly valuable opportunity for Europe's economic progress. So that brings me to my next question, which is, are there any potential negative consequences for countries where people are immigrating from? Is this something you could answer, Francisca? I think we have to make sure that we also open up legal pathways for training and education. And I think that is important because we have a lot of uh, countries with a lot of young people looking for education and training. And I think that would um, also allow them to make it a more equal partnership. What is important is to create legal pathways that are transparent, easy, digital, fair, so that people who want to work in Europe do not have to take the smuggler's route and undergo tremendous hardship uh, in order to work in Europe. And we need to make sure that we have here this clear distinction between the ways. And so far, we don't have this really in place yet. Rishad, something you wanted to add? And I also wanted to add that it is important the need for labor pathways to Europe because of the labor shortages, the aging But here, I would also like to emphasize the need for more pathways for people in need of protection. Of course, it's important always to highlight that we need such um, pathways for labor. But it's also need to distinguish between the two, because at the end, there are also shortages of pathways for protection. And here, I wanted to highlight that the number of EU member states take part in resettlement schemes decreased from 19 member states since 2017 
to 11 member states in 2022, which shows that member states, instead of increasing and scaling up their commitments on resettlement and on other pathways, unfortunately are decreasing their commitments or even not fulfilling on the promises that they made in the EU's platform on resettlement and safe pathways or uh, at the Global Refugee Forum that they announced that they will resettle uh, a certain number of places at the end of the year. Unfortunately, those pledges have never been fulfilled. I agree on having legal pathways and easy pathways also for those who are um, asylum seekers and who seek asylum within the EU. I think you have been mentioning the resettlement programs by the United Nations. I think that is one way of doing it. Another one is allowing for more humanitarian visa at uh, local embassies. And yes, we should avoid a terrible, really terrible smuggler's route that so many have to take. We need to do much more. We always talk then about the Mediterranean, but I think a lot happens before that. And all our efforts must be focused on preventing that route from increased uh, traffic. Um, and we also see that the smugglers, of course, make a b good business out of this, and we shouldn't make suffering a good business in this world. And therefore, we need legal pathways for migration. And also when people are politically in their country under pressure, persecuted, that we have other ways for them to come. Or if they are refugees from a war, that we take the most vulnerable and those most on need identified by the United Nations for resettlement. Then there is a selection process by the United Nations. And that process also is fairer than saying those who make it through the Mediterranean can get protection here because then you have a screening by the United Nations and identifying those that really need to have the protection outside, for example, refugee camps. And I think that is a, requires setting up these legal pathways in an easy way, in an accessible way, working also with the host countries, also with the countries where people are coming from there when they want to migrate for work. We need the cooperation agreements with those countries to make that an easier, better option, offering early on German language, access to language programs, etc. So I think this uh, requires the legal ways. And then also, of course, a clear and firm stance for those who still try the other way to say, no, we have now legal ways and these are the options for you to come. Rashad? For us, establishing any kind of uh, safe pathways which are in addition to resettlement places are welcomed. However, the evacuation of uh, Afghans at risk following the Taliban takeover highlighted the absence of structured humanitarian admission schemes in Europe, which most member states' evacuation efforts remaining limited until August of uh, 2021, which again highlighted that member states should also establish humanitarian admission, which is uh, the process is faster than resettlement and provide protection in case of emergency situation. And here, again, speaking of the EU level, in 2016, during the so-called refugee crisis, the European Commission published the proposal for establishing a union resettlement framework regulation and humanitarian admission regulation, which the negotiation has been finalized. However, if the adoption of this framework will lead to increased number of resettlement and humanitarian admission, that is something to be seen in future. This is our Did You Know section, where we provide an additional piece of context to the podcast conversation. 
After years of erratic and uncoordinated actions, the European Commission revealed in September 2020 the long-awaited new pact on migration and asylum. The aim was to find a coherent strategy on migration in which responsibility and solidarity, on the one hand, and opposed national interests and priorities, on the other, were well-balanced. Three years later, at the end of December 2023, the pact was approved. But in the meantime, member states have signed agreements with third countries that are not always in line with the EU laws. We will discuss this subject in the next part of our chat. So far, we've been discussing legal pathways to the EU. But when we're talking about migration, we also have to examine the cooperation and relationships between the EU, member states, with the countries representing the global majority. And this is something that you already referred to, Francisca, in terms of cooperation agreements. So my question to you is, with which countries do we already have such agreements? And what does this particularly look like in the case of Germany? Germany already has that cooperation with countries of the Western Balkans. This was put in place after 2015, and it was set up for specific sectors of businesses where you can also already learn German locally, where you can get prepared, for example, in the caring sector, nursing sector. And it's been very successful. And the cooperation was clear that you open up legal pathways and at the same time the concerned country takes back in their citizens who have no asylum ground to be um, in Germany, no reason to be there after all legal proceedings have been clear. So they take their own citizens back. And at the same time, we opened up legal pathways. And I think that is what we really should try to do is to say, look, if you want to come and work in Germany, you're welcome. We need your help. This is the way to go. And we help you on this way. And I think that what we have done with that region, it's not that you can copy it one-on-one, every country is different, you have different regions, but I think it can serve as an inspiration for others. And I think it has to always be linked also to education, not just for already trained and skilled labor, so that we also do invest uh, in the younger generation of these countries. Rashad, you also talked about EU member states not fulfilling their promises made to this effect. What would you like to contribute to this? In October 2022, 16 European countries committed to resettling 15,897 people for the year 2023, where 60% of these pledges were only from two countries, Germany and France. And according to the UNICEF statistic, as of November 2023, only 11,000 people reached Europe. So we will see a significant number of pledges left unfulfilled at the end of the year. So first of all, we urge European countries to increase their resettlement quotas because we all know that the number of displaced people globally are on the rise and people in need of protection and people in dire need of third country solutions are growing. So I believe that European countries or the EU as a whole are able to manage their part and their responsibility towards those people in need and by increasing their resettlement quotas and fulfilling their pledges on resettlement on other pathways. 
Thanks for that, Rashad. Based on kind of what you've said, there are a few questions that immediately kind of come to mind. As you rightly pointed out, the need for humanitarian support has drastically increased. There are more and more people who are finding themselves in situations of violence and insecurity. And I wondered if you could remark a bit on why you think that this decline has been happening in terms of member states fulfilling these promises and agreements, and also what you think could help change this or move this, move the needle to the other direction? I believe that uh, resettling a small number and, and a planned number from third countries to Europe is not a problem by itself. I believe that one of the excuses that member states are putting on the table is that their reception capacities are stretched and there is no reception places for people to be resettled in Europe, which of course we advocate that that is easily manageable and European countries should invest on reception centers. And also in cases of resettlement, there should be a specific places designated for resettlement places so that it could be very easy for them to proceed with the departures and with arrivals and also providing support. My perspective is that uh, Europe is able and can do more on resettlement and also in terms of easing pressure with large refugee hosting countries when it comes to access to safe third country solutions via resettlement or other pathways. I think the priority always needs to be to support people locally. And that's why we need to make sure that we have enough humanitarian aid funding available so that we can support the organizations that help refugees either in their own country or neighboring countries. And uh, Unfortunately, it is not so easy to um, increase the reception capacity. It's not just a question of money. It's a question of uh, human resources, of space. And therefore, I think the priority needs to be support locally, fund this. And then, of course, there will be people who have special needs and require special assistance. And we should be ready to do this in a legal pathway where resettlement programs in the framework of the United Nations. We have an increase again of uh, violent conflicts with the consequences we see. We have also the consequences of the climate crisis, uh, which is another source for people leaving their homes. And I think that there it's the same. We need more aid for them to restart a new life in other places. And of course, and I'm proud of that, that we managed to also start and kicked off now a fund to mitigate and adapt so that people will have less needs to leave their home. And I think that is good that we finally started this off at the COP now this year. Thanks for that, Francisca. There is one more topic that I'd like to address, which is what do cooperation agreements with countries in the global south need to address to strengthen and ensure human rights. And Rashad, you also talked about EU member states having very different approaches to migration. So what do you think we can expect from the new pact on migration and asylum? So as we all know, the EU has been a champion and has a long-standing history of providing protection to those fleeing war and, and conflict. It has always welcomed refugees with open arms and provided protection for people fleeing conflict and persecution throughout history, as we have seen with this, the case of uh, war in Yugoslavia and refugees from other countries and region. However, since the last decade, the EU and its member states are becoming less and less welcoming of people fleeing war and conflict with exception for people fleeing uh, Russian aggression in Ukraine, 
which is a good example and again show that if there is political will, EU and its member states can manage in providing protection for those uh, fleeing war. It is also worth mentioning that 80% of the world refugees populations are hosted by countries that together represented only 19% of the world's income, often in protracted situation and without adequate support from the global north, which illustrate an imbalance in sharing responsibility for protecting refugees. So the displacement unfortunately continues due to the emergence of conflicts, uh, persecution and war, and people uh, continues seeking protection with very small number seeking protection in Europe. So Europe must be able to provide protection for those small number without a panic or a paralysis. Now, when it comes to the pact, the long reform has going on since 2016. And then we have seen another attempt to reform the, the common European asylum system in 2020, uh, when the Commission published several proposals, including some new proposals to amend the common European asylum system under the name of uh, Pact on Migration and Silo. The pact, instead of improving the protection gaps and addressing the flaws in the Dublin regulation, is very much focused on increased use of border procedure that would mean increased use of detention for asylum seekers or more cases of de facto detention, increased use of accelerated procedure, which provide fewer safeguards for applicants in terms of procedural guarantees. On the other hand, an increase in responsibility for member states at the borders that would still need to be properly balanced even if solidarity measures were implemented. But unfortunately, the pact, as I mentioned, instead of addressing the functionality of asylum in Europe or compliance of member states with the current common European asylum system, is very much focused on detention, preventing people from coming, externalization to, or shifting responsibilities to other countries outside the EU. So from human rights violations, from human rights perspective, the pact will unfortunately lead to further human rights violation. For refugee rights, from the refugee rights perspective, from the refugees' perspective, from people's on the moose perspective, unfortunately, it will lead to more suffering, more detention, and it will make it more difficult for people on the move to access to protection uh, on the European territories. Thanks, Rashad. Uh, I think it's really important that you shared these inconsistencies and imbalances, as you've said, in terms of responsibility and resettlement. And I think it's also really important that you've drawn attention to the fact that there is more emphasis on pushing migrants back and on shifting responsibility than on actually making sure that the EU and its member states subscribe to what we say that we are, which is a champion for human rights. I would disagree with this. We will have some established solidarity and responsibility among all EU member states, which will be a first for many decades that this has been tried. And we will, of course, have to make sure that we make that solidarity mechanism work. And I think it's really key to make distinct pathways and making sure that you, if you want to work in Europe, you don't take the difficult roads via the Mediterranean, risk your life, and then apply for asylum to hope that one day then you can actually work in the EU. And then we would have much more capacity actually 
for accepting resettlement uh, program participants selected by the United Nations by other agencies. And I think that is the challenge we have in front of us. How do we make this possible so that finally we will be able to protect and you know, maybe even enlarge our perspectives on the legal side and make that legal and a safe and quick and transparent way. And at the same time, have then the capacity to really live up to our, in Germany, in our constitutional insured and enshrined right to asylum. And I think this is uh, what needs to say those who need the most protection and those who want to work and can work and are welcomed here, they don't have to go through these horrible, horrible ways. And I think the EU agreement will have to be judged at the end. Rashad, I'm sure you want to jump in. The current problem that we have in Europe is lack of compliance of the common European asylum system, lack of implementation by member states on reception directives, on qualification directives, on Dublin regulations, which put excessive responsibility on the member states at the EU's external borders. Now, with the reforms, they are more aimed at reducing, lowering safeguards for protection, delating procedural safeguards, access to legal remedies for people in need of protection, putting people in hotspot and detention center across the EU's border. Will the pact address the solidarity issue? I'm afraid no, because it's still lots of responsibility are overthrown or given to member states at the EU's external borders. And the wealthy member state can buy solidarity by offering financial support for countries at the EU's external border. Thanks very much, Rashad. That was a very interesting and intense, for good reason, uh, debate and conversation. So with that, even though I'm sure there's so much more we could say, I'd like to just thank both you and Francisca so much for joining us uh, for this episode and sharing your expertise. Thank you for being here with us. Thanks very much. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of the 13th episode of the Bull Europe podcast, the podcast of the European Union office of the Heinrich Bulls Stiftung in Brussels. As usual, we invite you to visit our website at eu.bull.org. Until the next episode, take care and goodbye.